Please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. We'll be dealing with verses 7 through 19 this evening. Mark 3, 7. This evening we move a little bit forward in our study, and last time we talked about Christ as the Lord of the Sabbath, that His power and authority extended even over this uh, most holy of days, the Sabbath day. Um, And we also thought about the importance of keeping the Lord's day, not just as a duty, but as a delight. Um, And now the text gives, takes a couple of significant turns. We look back for kind of a summary of Christ's ministry so far, and this this section of Scripture kind of leads us into a second phase of Christ's ministry, and then it gives us the account of the calling of the Twelve. So let us pray as we approach God's Word and ask His blessing upon it. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it speaks to us today, that it is the very Word of God, that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is authoritative over us. And Lord, we sit under it tonight, and we ask for your blessing upon it. And we ask, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here this evening would be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this evening in his holy and inerrant word. If you've ever driven in the mountains, especially if you're driving in a partially wooded area, and especially if you're a passenger, you may not notice how things change. You may not notice um, until you reach a clearing that you have gone up in elevation. And maybe you'll reach a clearing or a scenic overlook, and you'll look back and you'll see the road behind you, and you see how far you've come. You see the distance you've accomplished, what, you've, what has happened. And that's somewhat what we see in this text in verses 7 through 12. We see kind of a summary of Christ's ministry so far. And we see a little bit of a foreshadowing of the activity that, and the conflict that is to follow as really battle lines are being drawn between those who truly follow Jesus and those who will ultimately reject Him. And I think we see three types of people in these verses, and I've, I've kind of found four F's that I think hopefully describe them. The first are the foes, 
The second are the followers, and the third are those who are merely fans. The first group are the foes, those who oppose Jesus. We see them expressly mentioned in verse 11, the unclean spirits. Now, we've already encountered unclean spirits. We see them really pretty often in the text. We saw it in in chapter 1 where Christ, where the man was in the synagogue who had an unclean spirit. And the spirit challenged Jesus. And Jesus cast him out and exerted his authority over him. The demons or the evil spirits knew Jesus. And Jesus certainly knew them. As as the spirit did in um, this unclean spirit in chapter 1 identified Christ, so here in chapter 3, they call him out as the Son of God. But it wasn't a, a, a submission, it was more of a challenge in that, as though the demons could gain control of Jesus by revealing his name. But even in that, they had to be submissive to Christ's authority. Jesus issued a strict order to them that they should not make him known. This was part of his display of authority over them. And a couple other reasons, certainly one would be that a demon is not a fit person to share the message of Christ's um, person and work and what he came to do. And probably primarily it was that it was not time yet for Jesus to be fully revealed. He knew of the animosity that was building. He knew how the Pharisees hated him. We had already read in a few verses earlier how that the Pharisees were were plotting with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. And Christ knew that his message had not been spread. He needed time with his disciples. It was not yet his time to be completely revealed to the masses. He certainly did teach. He certainly did reveal the message of the kingdom to those he encountered. The other group who were foes of Christ are not specifically named in our text, but we see them just sprinkled throughout up until this point, and we'll see it more as we go along, and that's certainly the Pharisees. They, they have been this animosity between Jesus' message and His authority and who He was has been building with the Pharisees. And now we see his, his message spreading. We had previously seen it in the area of Galilee, and now we see it spreading and, and multiplying exponentially. It mentions Jerusalem and Judea. Those were in the southern parts of Israel. Edomia or Edom, which is even further south. Um, it talks about beyond Jordan, the message spreading to beyond Jordan. That was east um, to the other side of Jordan, and then up to Tyre and Sidon. So really basically north and east and south. It didn't spread west because that was the Mediterranean Sea, but Christ's message was spreading. So if the Pharisees were disgruntled, upset about what was going on before, how much more as the message of Christ spread to other regions. So we see these foes of Christ, but we also see followers, and we see that so distinctly in the message of him calling the twelve to himself. We see not just the twelve, but we see a group of people that he called to himself. The setting of this section leads us to to see it as kind of a change in um, maybe a a different act or, you know, it's, it's a different place. It could be a different time. It says that he went up the mountain and there he called his followers and he chose the 12 disciples. 
Um, the group was likely more than just the 12, a, a group of followers, because um, Luke especially tells us that from among these other followers, he called the 12. Luke also tells us that he spent the night in prayer prior to calling the 12 to himself as he sought to please the Father even in that. But notice that the call was based upon Christ's choice. It was Jesus who did the choosing. Christ chose these men specifically to do his work and to carry forward his message. And why 12? Why did he choose 12? Why not 10 or 50? Well, if we think about it, there is something significant about that. When God called Abraham and said he was going to make him a great nation, he did it through his descendants. Primarily, especially, and exponentially through his grandson, Jacob, who had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of these 12 tribes, the descendants of Jacob's 12 sons, became a distinct group of people that together became the people of God. These 12 tribes numbered just 70 persons when they left the land of Canaan during the famine and went to Egypt, where God had placed Joseph to preserve them and to give, allow them to eat. They were there, as you know, for over 400 years, and then God called them out. And at that time, they numbered in the hundreds of thousands, probably over a million people came out in the Exodus. And it was really that calling out, that Exodus, that made them a nation. Before they were, they were you know, when they went into Egypt, they were a large family. And then they became an oppressed people group. And God called them out and separated them from the nations, and they were his people. They were the Israelites. They were God's people. Now God calls 12 disciples to reflect his people in the Old Testament. Jesus here is, is reforming. He's reconstituting, if you will, the people of God. From the apostles, Jesus forms the church. Not through a physical seed like he did for Abraham, although, yes, we do see the church built through our children, and we certainly should consider that, but it is a spiritual work that the apostles were called to do, to build his church by his word and spirit. It's through the work of the church that God's people are brought into existence. And Jesus himself links the 12 apostles with the 12 tribes in Matthew 19, 28, saying that the 12 disciples will sit in judgment of the 12 tribes. So why is this significant? Well, because it is part of his kingdom. It's part of his kingdom being at hand. It's part of the newness of the new covenant, of the kingdom, of the coming of the kingdom. This is covenant renewal. It is restoration of the people of God in the kingdom of God. And in this text, Mark lists the 12 disciples, but he doesn't put a lot of emphasis on the individual disciples really throughout the book of Mark. In fact, some of them are only mentioned here in this text this morning. Um, we, we could consider a few of them. Certainly, Peter is one that was foremost in the Gospels, kind of usually the one that's listed first. Uh, Peter, always impetuous, often wavering, but then following Christ's ascension, he was a fearless preacher of the resurrection of Christ and the hope of the gospel. And it's interesting to think about, this is just kind of an aside, I think about Peter that 
um, scholars think that he really was the one that was sort of looking over Mark's shoulder and relating the events and, and maybe proofreading what Mark wrote in, in this gospel. And you think about Peter later in life seeing this written, and he was not afraid to show us who he really was, warts and all. He really showed us how his faith wavered. He really showed us how he didn't really get it sometimes. And I so appreciate that about God's Word, and especially about how Peter is portrayed in the Gospel. We see James. James was a leader of the early church, and the first apostle called to give his life as a martyr. John, his brother, together they were the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, which probably spoke to their um, volatile personalities. Um, We see John... In, at the end of the New Testament, as he wrote his, his epistles, wrote the book of Revelation, probably the longest living of the, of the disciples. But I want us to see more than just a list here. We could, we could consider these, and there's much to learn from the lives of the disciples. But this evening, I want us to consider the method of discipleship that Christ used. The text says that Jesus appointed them that they might be with him. I want us to pause and think about that. They were with Jesus. They walked with him. They watched him. They observed him in a variety of situations. They listened to his teaching. They absorbed his message. They learned by observation and example. They were with him. But we also see that he sent them out. He equipped them by by having them walk with him... And then he sent them out with the message of his kingdom. That's what the word apostle means. The one sent forth. That's what they were. And he also gave them authority. They were an extension of his authority. They carried forward his mission. They established the church. They carried on the work that Christ began. That was his design. And I think there's a lesson for us here. How do we follow Christ? How do we become better disciples? Well, we look at this and we think, okay, we need to be with Jesus. We should walk with him. We should listen to his teaching. We should read his word. That's where his teaching's found. We should hear his word proclaimed. That's how we learn about Jesus. To be a good disciple, we need to keep our eyes on him and and just seek to absorb his message And we are sent forth to proclaim his message. Certainly not in the same sense as the apostles who established the church. Their role was unique. And it it has passed. The, The office of apostle has passed. But in another sense, we are all sent forth to proclaim the message of his kingdom. The glorious good news of the gospel. So we must walk with Jesus. We must soak ourselves, steep ourselves in the message of the gospel and then take that message to others and live it out in front of them. And I think this method that we see of of walking with Jesus and being sent out can also be applied to our relationships. When we think about discipleship within the church, what should that look like? What is discipleship anyway? At its most basic level, it's helping others to follow Jesus. I had a pastor friend that told me he defined discipleship as considering where, where a person is in their spiritual walk and then seeking to help them grow in that walk. 
That seems pretty simple, but sometimes it's challenging to do that. That involves identifying ways that they can grow in Christ. Maybe that's a person who doesn't pick up their Bible between Sunday and Sunday. It's encouraging that man to take time to read even just a little bit of God's Word. Mark Dever has written that discipling is a relationship in which we seek to do spiritual good for someone by initiating, teaching, correcting, modeling, loving, humbling ourselves, counseling, and influencing. That's a mouthful. I want to pull three things from that, okay? All of it's good, but I want us to think about three things primarily. First of all, discipleship is a relationship. For us to be active disciple makers, it involves a relationship. You can't genuinely encourage someone, and you certainly can't correct or reprove someone, and that's part of discipleship sometimes, but you can't do those things unless there's a relationship. And you really can't love each other well unless you know one another. And that's one reason why our community groups are so important, and I've been, I've been trying to, to learn to, you know, preachers sometimes just beat a drum, and I'm trying to learn to beat that drum as I think about how we encourage and love one another. And I think our community groups can be such a vital part of that as we, as we learn to know one another. We have the privilege, and I'm, I'm not going to share any details, so if any of you were at our community group that we were at Friday night, but there was a, a couple there that shared a need in their family, and then there was another couple that, that identified and said, you know what, that has happened to us too. We have been through that. And this was an especially dark valley that this, that this family was walking through. And I just sat back in awe thinking about, this is so amazing to see the body of Christ, how God has led these people together on this night that they could share their heart, they could pray for one another, and they could identify and say, you know, think about these things as you're walking through this valley. And it was just such a blessing to see that connection that the Lord orchestrated through our community group. So discipleship is a relationship. You have to know one another. It's also spiritual. And I think it's easy to, to have relationships and, not, and, and miss that spiritual aspect of it. Um, you know, it's more than just hanging out, although hanging out is important. It's, it's part of growing. It's part of knowing one another and spending time together. Discipleship is about helping people grow in Christ, to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in godliness, to grow in grace, and to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So discipleship is a relationship, it's spiritual, and it's intentional. It involves focused effort, and it doesn't happen on its own. If we're going to encourage one another, if we're going to be disciple-makers and disciplers, we have to be intentional. We have to think about it. We have to pray and ask God to help us in that. So my challenge to you tonight is this. If you don't currently have someone in your life that you're discipling, pray that God would help you identify that someone that you can learn to know, that you can develop a, a growing relationship, a brother or sister in Christ, a person that you can pray for and seek to help them in their walk with God. And I think this applies to 
nearly all ages, okay? If you are a, a child, um, you can be a good influence on your friends, but even young people in college can help to disciple a high schooler. If you're an older person, you have much wisdom to share with somebody like myself and, and people that are, that are busy raising kids to walk alongside them and encourage them in that walk. I, have, I am so blessed and encouraged as I see you doing this. And I don't say this, I don't preach this because I don't think it's happening, because it is, and that's exciting. I see organic discipleship happening. But I know for some of you, you need this message. You need to seek someone out. You need to walk alongside and share someone's life and help point them to Christ. All of us, especially those of us that are in our second half of lives, we should be second half of our lives. We should be considering how we will leave the world for our children and grandchildren. Will we leave a generation that's equipped and ready to carry the church into the next generation for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I worked for a man when I worked at Spirit Aerosystems that he was obviously, you know, he, he, he kind of conveyed the, the spirit that he was getting ready to retire. It wasn't that he didn't care at all about his job, but, you know, you could just kind of get this sense that he was ready to be done. But he was still very much concerned about equipping the next generation of people to lead the company. And what I heard from him was interesting because he didn't talk about the great projects that he had led, which although I think he had, he talked about the people he had influenced. And he was proud. It was a feather in his hat to say, I helped to mentor this person who's now the CFO, or I've helped to mentor this manager over here. We need to be doing that in the church, especially older folks need to be thinking about who can I help equip to be the leader for the next generation. That's what the church needs. Parents, I want to encourage you and challenge you as well. You're discipling your children every day. Just as Jesus' disciples walked along with him and they saw his example, our kids are looking at us. Our children are looking at us. Be the example. Be a godly example for them. Be intentional in your teaching teaching your children and training them to know God in His Word. Lastly, I think in this group, this, this swelling group that we see in this passage, we're some fans. Now, when I say fans, you might think of somebody that's enthusiastic in their, in their love and for Christ. And that's what we should, all should be. But what I'm talking about is those that are just fans, that are not really committed. They're the people that my friend in Kansas would call looky-loos, those that are just kind of there to kind of look and observe and, and not really be a part, not really be a follower, just curious about what was going on and not really interested in being a disciple of Christ. It'd be like me going into a Corvette dealership and pretending like I had money to buy one when all I wanted was just maybe to hopefully test drive one. But as the book of Mark progresses, we see the lines becoming more clear between those that are on the outside and those that are on the inside, the true followers of Christ and those who will ultimately reject him and be lost. I know there are some, in fact, I had the privilege of, of speaking with an individual this week who really seemed to want to follow Christ. And I don't know that he was there yet, 
but he was, it seemed like God was really drawing him to himself. That's not the kind of fan I'm talking about. I'm talking about those that aren't really committed. I'm concerned for those who may be attending church and are refusing to walk as a disciple. Maybe they're more of a fake than a fan. But Jesus calls us to follow him, to walk with him, to learn from him, to commune with him. Tonight, if you're not a follower, come to Christ. Repent of your sins and believe and trust in him for salvation. And tonight, he invites all of us to follow him. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would grant us grace to be good followers. And Lord, as we follow you, help us to keep our eyes on Christ and to be with you and to absorb your message and make it our own. And Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to look around and see who else we might help, who else we might be able to point to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would build your church and Lord, that you would um, help us to love one another effectively. Help us to pray for each other and help us to encourage one another to love and good works. Lord, we ask and we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.